great to be here preaching uh, through Exodus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this opportunity to gather shoulder to shoulder, sisters and brothers, to worship you. Help us to likewise be open to your spirit as we hear your word for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. In World War One, their allies were locked into a 500-mile-long front of trenches and mud and death. Now, Winston Churchill was the politician responsible for the Navy at the time, and he proposed to break the stalemate by taking the narrow entrance into the Black Sea. This would neutralise the Ottoman Empire and open up a second front. He was so confident that Churchill sent significant numbers of ships and men to land on Gallipoli on the 25th of May. 16,000 allies, mainly New Zealand and Australia's, landed on that day until nine months later where the ill-fated disastrous campaign finished. Finished with an evacuation, but they left behind 45,000 Allied troops dead. Now fast forward 29 years to the Second World War and to the eve of D-Day, the 5th of June 1944. And this time Churchill is now Prime Minister. And he's responsible for the largest sea invasion in history, not 16,000, but 160,000 men were poised the next day to land on hostile beaches. Not 16, but 160,000, 10 times more the lives. Now we can imagine how Churchill must have felt leading up to the greatest risk of the 20th century. The 2017 movie Churchill explores exactly this. It takes the four days before D-Day, and follows Winston Churchill and how he wrestles with having to do exactly this. 30 years later, his proposed invasion was an absolute disaster. What is he going to do now? Here's a short clip from the movie. Beaches. Oh, let's bring it back. I mustn't let it happen again. General Eisenhower. Winston? This will be the greatest campaign by our allied forces. The potential for disaster is too great. The plans for D-Day have been in place for over a month. I can't lead this. I can't lead this. Why? Because the last time was such a failure. So many lives lost. And it's not too great a leap of the imagination to think of Moses also wrestling with his last past failure. Uh, It wasn't a 30-year gap, but 40 years earlier, 40 years before the burning bush, Moses had failed to rescue the people of Israel. And now, at the burning bush, he's tasked to rescue hundreds of thousands of Israelites. In fact, last week when we looked at the five excuses that Moses gave to turn down his commissioning, they were his way of saying, I can't lead this. However, you can only argue with the living God for so long. And so we pick up the story today in Exodus 4 with Moses returning home, packing up his wife and two boys and striking out for Egypt. And as he travels through the wilderness, God reveals more of the detail. At the burning bush, he just said, go. As he travels towards Egypt, God gives Moses a three-stage rescue plan. And we see that. In Exodus 4, from verse 21, 
Exodus 4.21. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord Israel to my first, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. It's all a bit serious, isn't it? But tied up in those words is the three stages of the rescue plan to rescue God's people out of Israel. The first stage is the miraculous signs. And remember last week at the burning bush, there were three signs. The staff turned into a what? Snake. The hand came out from his cloak and was leprous and then healed. And the last one was to turn water into the ground and it turned to blood. So those are the three signs. He is to take those miraculous signs, not just to the Israelites to prove God spoke to him, but also to Pharaoh. And there will be more miraculous signs to follow. So that's the first stage. The second stage is resistance. Pharaoh's heart will be hardened so that he will not let the people of Israelites go. Moses, I'm warning you, this will not be easy. Be prepared. There will be resistance. However, the third stage of the plan is the rescue. God will come through. The last miraculous sign, the last plague, if you call it that, is the death of the firstborn of all those in Egypt. And only then, Moses, will Pharaoh let my people go. So you've got it, Moses. You've got the plan. Three stages. And God goes before Moses. So as he's traveling towards Egypt, God prompts his older brother Aaron to go out into the wilderness and meet him. And Aaron, you imagine the joy of the reunion between brothers who haven't seen each other for 40 years. Aaron will meet his sister-in-law and two nephews for the first time. And they travel into Egypt and they gather the elders together. And we see this in verse 29. The elders are gathered together. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. The people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. It's a wonderful scene, isn't it? Moses and Aaron call the elders together. Aaron, on behalf of Moses, remember at the burning bush, Moses said, I've got faltering lips. And God said, well, I'll get Aaron to speak for you. So this is what's happening here. And he calls the elders together and he throws his staff down and it turns into a snake and the hand becomes leprous and then cleansed and the water to blood. And then, they, and then the elders hear that God has heard their cries and seen their oppression and has come to rescue them from affliction. Imagine that. All those years of praying and not hearing anything. And then God speaks to them. No wonder they bowed their heads and worshipped. And this all bodes well, doesn't it? And so Moses and Aaron, they approach Pharaoh. And, and Moses is familiar with the palace. Remember, he grew up there. He knows it like the back of his hand. Now the Bible tells us that all of the people that wanted Moses dead have themselves passed away. So we're not sure how many people in the royal household, including Pharaoh, actually know who this ex-prince of Egypt is. 
But that doesn't bother Moses because he's not going because of his past family background. He's going because he trusts in the great I am. And so he comes before Pharaoh. And we see this in chapter 5, verse 1. And so he speaks to Pharaoh and says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then Moses and Aaron said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest we fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Goodness me, that didn't go well, did it? (laughs) Wow. And it gets worse because Pharaoh decides he's going to teach these lazy slaves a lesson. And he orders that all of the slaves, and at the moment they're making bricks out of mud, but the straw is given to them and they have quotas. Now they have to find the straw for themselves. And when the foremen, those in charge of the Israelites, the Israelite foremen, hear this, they're really worried. They don't know how this is going to happen. And so they approach Pharaoh, and they beg Pharaoh to supply the straw. And Pharaoh just laughs. He's adamant. You slaves need to work harder. You've got far too much time on your hands if you can approach me and ask for your freedom. And, of course, the foremen are very worried, and they're also extremely angry, (laughs) angry at Moses and Aaron. We see this in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from the Pharaoh. So it's one of those sort of lift meetings almost, you know. They come out of the door in the palace, and there's Moses and Aaron waiting to go in. And so the foreman, well, they're not impressed at all. Verse 21, they said to Moses and Aaron, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand, to kill us. However, Moses knows the plan. He's been told the plan and he's told it to the Israelites. The plan is three stages, miracles, resistance, and then freedom. The miracles have started, and so just like God said, here comes the resistance. This is Moses' opportunity to remind the Israelite foreman of God's plan and to encourage them to remain strong. Let's see how Moses gets on in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Verse 23. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to his people, and you have not delivered your people at all. (laughs) Moses, have you forgot the plan? Well, yes, you have. And what we have here is a failure of nerve. We have a failure of leadership. We have a failure of faith. And this is why I couldn't help thinking of Sir Winston Churchill the few days before D-Day, when all of that past came rushing back in and Moses forgot God's plan. Now, if I was God... I would have been very grumpy with Moses, told him off, 
Moses, remember the plan. It was never just miracles straight to freedom. It was miracles, resistance, freedom. Get back in the game. Uh, But God's much more patient and a lot more kind than I ever would be. And so he shows his kindness by giving Moses four wonderful promises. They are the promises that will rescue Israel from slavery. And we see these in chapter 6, verse 6. Now these four promises of salvation start with the words, I will. See if you can pick them up. Exodus 6 from verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. See those four wonderful promises there that God is giving to Moses and to the Israelites. The four promises. I will bring you out. I will redeem you. I will deliver you. I will take you as mine. This is God's way of saying, stick with the plan, Moses. Continue to show the signs, the miraculous signs. And though Pharaoh will resist for a time, I will bring you out. I will bring you to freedom. I will be your God and you will worship me in the wilderness. Aren't these mighty promises? Promises of salvation. Unfortunately, things are still grim, and so we read in verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. They just weren't ready to listen, and, and who can blame them? It's been tough. All their expectations were built up and then seemingly dashed as things get worse. But now, for the second week, we're going to leave Moses in a tight spot. Last week, we left Moses before the burning bush, and he was struggling to hear God's word. Today, we're going to leave Moses here with the Israelites, who are also struggling to hear God's word. Next week, we're going to pick up the story as Pharaoh absolutely refuses to listen to God's word. But now, for the Israelites and Moses, things have got a lot worse before they've got better. So what are our take-homes? What are some of the implications for us? Now, as I was pondering on this, I couldn't help but wonder why Moses and the people got the plan so wrong. (laughs) It was a three-step plan, and it was very obvious. God had made it clear. Signs, resistance, freedom. It was never two stages. It was never going straight from the signs to the freedom. And maybe when Moses and Aaron were talking to the elders, they kind of just let that resistance slide, you know. We'll just tell the people about the good news. (laughs) We'll show the signs, get them excited, and go straight to the freedom from slavery. Maybe they dropped out that unpleasant, unpopular bit about resistance. Maybe that was it. Or maybe the Israelites were just so excited and thrilled to hear that God cared and was going to rescue them, they just didn't have the ears to hear. It's a bit like an engaged couple, you know, they're so in love and you can sit them inside and say, look, you know, it's great that you can marry, but you know, things will get a bit tough along the line and all this and they just look at you and nothing sinks in. 
And then a few years down the line, something goes a bit wrong, and they say, nobody told us this would happen. And you say, well, <laughs> it's just because a young couple often, I mean, you do that as a minister when you're preparing young couples. Yes, they're just not in a place to hear that. And, and maybe it was a bit like that with, <laughs> with uh, the people. They were just so thrilled to hear that God loved them and cared. But anyway, it just got me thinking that we need to be very careful when it comes to evangelism, that we share the whole gospel with those who don't know Jesus too, share the three stages of salvation and not just give them the two. It's very easy to tell people what the signs are. Remember, we looked at the two signs from last week. We don't have the snake and the leprosy and the blood. What we have, are what are the two signs that we have? We have the cross and the empty tomb. Remember, we just go back. Uh, Pharisees asked Jesus, what sign are you going to give us? And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to give you any sign except for the sign of Jonah, who was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, where Jesus was referring to the only sign that he would give people would be his death and resurrection. So as we share Jesus and tell people about the wonder of the death and resurrection and how that brings forgiveness of sin, it's very easy for us to go to the rescue, the salvation. What we learn here is that we need to tell them that there will be resistance. We still tell them, but we tell them that there will be resistance. We probably don't lead with the resistance. We don't say Jesus died for you and life's going to be miserable or that life's going to be hard. (laughs) We tell them that Jesus died for them and that if you believe in Jesus, if you give your life to Jesus, you'll be born again. You'll be adopted into the family of God. You'll have the Holy Spirit in you. However, there will be resistance and there will be troubles, but God will be with you. Because we too often miss out that last bit. We miss out the resistance. You see, just as Pharaoh resisted God's people in Exodus, so Satan resists all who follow Jesus. It's true, isn't it? If you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you know that trials come your way. I love the way one Peter puts this. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, in some respects, this is what Moses should have told the foreman as they came out from Pharaoh's palace, from his his throne room. They should have said, Dear friends, didn't I? Don't be surprised at this painful trial, as though something strange was happening to you. I told you it would happen. And we need to hear this word for ourselves as well, because it's not just at salvation, but our life as Christians involves, from time to time, trials. Do not be friends. I could say that to each one of us, including myself. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering, though something strange was happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, there's a whole sermon there <laughs> about how we move our trials into a sense of rejoicing. You might be going through a trial now. Know that that trial is not wasted. God is using that to refine you, to build perseverance and to build maturity. If you're not going through a trial now, there'll be one in a week or two or three or four. I mean, that's, you know, that's just being part of the Christian life. Dear friends, do not be surprised. And this is what the people of Israel in Exodus need to learn and are learning. That's our first take home. When we share Jesus, make sure we get the three stages. Don't just skip the difficult one or the one that's unpleasant for people to hear. And the second take home is all to do with communion. Now you remember those four promises. I will bring you out. 
I will redeem you, I will deliver you, I will take you as mine. Uh, in Jesus' day and still today, these four promises are remembered in the Passover meal. When you take the Passover meal, you take four cups. And each of these cups represents these four promises. Four cups. So at the beginning of the Passover meal, the command to celebrate Passover, which is found in Exodus 12, is, is read. Some candles are lit. The table's prepared. Someone will stand and read that passage from Exodus 12, and then they will say, I will bring you out. Words to that effect. And then everybody has a drink from a cup of wine. It's like a toast. The first cup. Later on in the meal, there's the second cup. Someone will stand up. I will redeem you. These are the promises of God that are celebrated, repeated each Passover meal. Towards the end of the meal, after the breaking of the bread, it's I will deliver you. And the last cup, I will take you as mine. Now this gives us very special insight to the Last Supper, the meal that Jesus took on the night of his betrayal and our communion. So I'm going to uh, read from Matthew 26. I want you to see if you can work out which of the four cups Jesus is referring to. You'll be very familiar with this passage. Matthew chapter 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Which cup? It's the third cup after the breaking of the bread. Now this third cup is I will deliver you cup. And Jesus redefines this. Instead of I as in God will deliver you, it's now I, Jesus, will deliver you. And then he adds these words to the cup. This is the covenant which is poured out from the many for the forgiveness of sins. And so when we take the uh, communion cup, the little wee cup, or however you take it, we're actually taking the third cup of the Passover meal, the I will deliver you cup that Jesus has redefined to include the forgiveness of sins that he brought on the cross. And there's more, though this is a little bit more speculative a number of Bible teachers, they believe that when Jesus says in Matthew 26, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom, some people think he's referring to the fourth cup. And Jesus is saying, I will not drink this fourth cup, I take you as mine cup, until we meet again in heaven. And we will drink this fourth cup, and I will take you as mine forever. Isn't that a lovely thought, that Jesus is holding off taking that fourth cup until we get to heaven, and he will drink it with us, and that fourth promise, I will make you as mine, becomes all eternity. Isn't it amazing how Exodus can open up the joy and the wonder of communion? And there's more, of course, as we'll explore in a few weeks as we get to the Passover in Exodus 12. Let's wrap this up. Today, I suppose, we've looked at, when it comes to the, the bigger scheme of Exodus and the rescue, we're into what might be called a phony war. Now, those with their Second World War history will know that when the Germans started the war with a hiss and a rush and invaded Poland, it was all over in a week or so. 
what happened was war was declared, but there was a lot of posturing and moving of forces, and so it was called a phony war for those few months because there was very little action. Then after that phony war, it all broke loose and the Germans took out France and the lowlands very quickly. And in between time was that was called that phony war. And Moses is really like that now. He's between the burning bush and the ten plagues that are going to come thundering down on Pharaoh and Egypt. And he's in the middle there. And he's struggling. And the people of God are struggling. But God has given him a plan. Three-fold plan. Miraculous signs, resistance, and rescue. And we've been reminded that when we share our faith, we share the signs. Jesus died for you, rose from the dead for you, so that you will be rescued from sin or death. But we also remember to remind folk that there will be pushback. But God will be with us. And the second thing we've seen is the communion and how the third cup, I will deliver you cup, very directly corresponds to the cup that we take every communion Sunday. That I have delivered you. I have delivered you from slavery cup that we drink at communion. This is the good news of the gospel. We are delivered from slavery to sin and death. We are greatly loved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Thank you for opening up Exodus to us and we see the roots of salvation that we experience are here and we thank you for those four promises. We thank you that in Christ they are made real to us in a true and a better way. Help us to really understand and come to terms with those wonderful promises of deliverance. May we walk with freedom in them in Jesus' name. We pray this through Christ our dear Lord. Amen.